This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. If you've been to a New York Yankees game at any time over the last 13 years, you've heard his voice rain down from the speakers. Paul Oden put in the hard work for 30 years, working at radio stations, doing PA for different teams all over the country, filling in doing play-by-play on the radio and TV to get to where he is today. Did I mention he once worked alongside the great Harry Carey? There's a young man out here in California who does the work for USC. And he, he's with us now, and he's going to do some play-by-play. Paul Olden. Paul, take it away. <laughs> so. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from authors, professional photographers, and La Habra City Councilman James Gomez. I don't care if they're a Republican or a Democrat or whatever they are. I don't care what political association. Just do the right thing for the community and help us when we need help. You know, there's so many people that, and it's really big, With and I'm a conservative, the fact that, that wow, you know, uh, you know, less government, this and that, but, you know, there's, there's monies out there. If La Habra doesn't get it, it's going to go to somebody else. That's the reality of it. So why not do the best you can and get what you can for your community? The rest of my conversation with James can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Paul Oden. I can't tell you how excited I was to have a guest on that introduced me to this guest. And this guest is truly, truly a professional in his world. I mean, I, Paul, I am flabbergasted to have you on. How, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, off day with the Yankees on the road, uh, a little wet here in New York today, but soon it'll be sunny again and hot and muggy. Uh, typical summer, <laughs> <laughs> typical New York summer. I hope yeah. my past guests don't get upset when I make this statement, but you're going to have the best voice for this podcast. <laughs> Oh, well, that's good to hear. Uh, <laughs> you need, or you need to book uh, better voices than <laughs> Yeah, no. And that's a prerequisite for your guests in the future. No, Must have good voice. The interesting guests is what you want, but I've got you as an interesting guest with a great voice, so like, I got a double whammy. That's like the perfect thing. <laughs> ah, okay. I'll go with that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 I've said a million times, I love doing my research on my guests. It really, you get to find out all kinds of nuggets. And when I started doing my research on you, I was floored how, how you've jumped around in this business and then where you're at today. It's a, it just shows how passionate and desirable and no adversity. You just keep going in this craft. Well, yeah, it helps to start young. <laughs> <laughs> well, seven, eight years old, you got started in the business? <laughs> Not quite that young, but uh, 15 is when I decided I wanted to become a baseball broadcaster uh, and started working at the craft at that age, uh, sending letters to various sports announcers. And Dick Emberg wrote me back a uh, short note saying, just go out and buy a tape recorder and sit in front of the TV and do play-by-play or go to youth league games. Uh, in my case, I went to USC uh, baseball games at Old Boulevard Field with 
Rod Dato was still uh, in his heyday as coach and just sat in the stands and, and did play-by-play. And uh, eventually, uh, it led to I was there all the time. I got to know the actual broadcasting students at USC, and they actually put me on the air a couple times doing a real USC baseball game with them. And then I became the PA announcer there for USC for a few years. <laughs> God, geez, Just from a... hanging out around campus. <laughs> and you're still in high school. Yeah, yeah. Wow. When, okay, this is every boy's, like, nightmare <laughs> moment. Like, what, when did you get your voice? When did your voice change from preteen to teen? I have no idea. I, I, I don't have any true recollection of there be a demonstrative change in my voice. So I don't know, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I, I saw a great <laughs> interview with uh, Barry White, and he said one morning he walked in and to the kitchen, his mother's making breakfast, and he said hello, and she dropped what she was making him because that voice came out, and she was like, yeah. where's my son? <laughs> what yeah. happened? Now there's a voice. Uh, Barry White had uh, one of the great voices of all time, and, uh, he took advantage of it, uh, oh, you know, doing commercials and stuff after his success in music. Uh, but that was a voice. It was like James Earl Jones' oh, voice, yeah. uh, double. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He can sing, and he was handsome, and he did his thing. Yeah. He was great. So yeah. you didn't have one of those, like, moments where, bang, you woke up yeah. in your, you know, pajamas, and all of a sudden you had this beautiful voice. <laughs> No, no, it didn't happen that way. Did, uh, did you work can, at it? Oh, oh yeah. Well, I, I practiced, well, from age 15, I'm practicing announcing and uh, uh, reading out loud and all that sort of thing. And uh, you could tell from, I still have some tapes from those years, reel to reel, three inch reel to reel tapes, oh. uh, because that was, that was state of the art when I was 15. Uh, yes. Small three inch reel to reel tape recorders. Uh, cassettes hadn't become popular yet, but then I moved into the cassette world, uh, and uh, a few years later, still have some of those cassettes too. Uh, but you just practice and, and, and sit in front of the TV and broadcast everything. Uh, I think Al Michaels used to say that he used to walk around the house, uh, and say, uh, and now, uh, Al is opening the refrigerator and reaching for the orange juice and passing up the bagels. And uh, so it just describe whatever you see in it. It, it really helps actually uh, later on because it's all extemporaneous talking play by play uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you describe what you see. Some, some are better than others at doing that. Wow. I mean, here you are at SC at 15. You're not even 15 and a half. You don't even have a worker's permit. Like that's unbelievable. It- well, I, I wasn't doing PA at 15, but I was sitting in the stands there sure. at Bovar Field at, at 15, 16 years old uh, with the tape recorder. And, 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 I, and I didn't really take the time to get the actual lineups for the uh, two teams, USC or whoever they were playing. So I just, I said, uh, it was the Dodgers and the Angels <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I just used those Dodger names and Angel names uh, to replace the guys, on, the actual guys on the field. Who at the time, as it turns out, uh, Randy Johnson was playing at USC. Still, uh, Tom Seaver had just finished up there. Uh, so I, Mark I go McGuire, way, right? Mark McGuire, yeah, oh, yeah, I go goodness. way, way back. 
Well, I just saw the other day that uh, Rod Dato's grandson now works with Tom House and their quarterbacks coaches. Yeah. And they, uh, they have several uh, uh, players from the NFL as their clients. Yeah, I, unbelievable. Unbelievable. So so here you are. Like, does the How is your family taking this? Are they thinking like, Paul, are you crazy? What are you doing sitting in front of the TV announcing games or – what is their well, thought? I was, I was in I was in my bedroom doing that, so okay. I wasn't out in I, I wasn't out in the open. But I can remember once, and you might recall this game. I think it was 1971 or 72. Uh, Nebraska's Johnny Rogers, yes, uh, had uh, over like a six or seven touchdown game, and I'm in my bedroom. Uh, oh my God, Johnny Rogers just scored another touchdown. My mother came back to find out what all the yelling and screaming, especially when I'm saying, "Oh my God." Uh, what's going on back here? And I said, Johnny Rogers has scored another touchdown. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, that's, that's what happens when you sit in your room and you do play by play on the, on the TV, you're kind of uninhibited. Uh, but my, my parents were, uh, uh, they weren't, they weren't, uh, discouraging at all. They were, uh, uh, whatever I wanted to do, as long as I kept out of trouble, uh, they gave me a pretty long leash. Uh, to uh, hang out or do stuff with friends at late hours, as long as I told them where I was and when I was coming home, uh, they were fine. Now you had two masters, literally in LA, that you could listen to, Mister Scully and Mister Hearns. I mean, those yeah. must have and, been... and, and well, three actually, Dick Enberg too. And Dick Enberg was with the Angels. I don't remember exactly when Bob Miller started with the Kings, but that could have been one. I mean, you had yeah. great yeah, I... voices. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I, I was, I would go to Kings hockey games with my friend Ted Sobel, who was a broadcaster at KFWB for many years, uh, and we would sit in the stands uh, and do play-by-play at the forum because you could get a you could get a cheap ticket uh, to those Lakers and Kings games for a couple of bucks in the parking lot. This yeah. is long before long before the the organized scalpers came along, <laughs> uh, so we always waited. Uh, until the last minute to get our our tickets, uh, and we would sit in the rafters there at the forum and do play by play into our tape recorders. And so we were around when when Bob Miller started. Uh, I think it was the mid seventies. It was his first game after Jiggs McDonald left, uh, and they replaced him with uh, Bob Miller, who is uh, a Hall of Famer himself. So oh, yeah, yeah, it, it was a great. Uh, uh, laboratory for broadcasters. We had many solid uh, play-by-play men and 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 uh, and news anchors and sports anchors to uh, to really emulate and steal from to learn how to become. Uh, because you felt if if we could be as good as these guys in Los Angeles, then uh, we should be able to get jobs anywhere. Sure. Hello, Kansas City, Miami, wherever. <laughs> yeah. Well, we sent. Believe me, I sent tapes to all those places and uh, learned how to uh, accept being told, "Nope, sorry." Well, I, I was sending out tapes to major league teams when I was 18 years old, uh, not really believing that I was going to get hired, but I wanted to. I, I, I deduced uh, that if I send out tapes now. Uh, and they were they and they were good tapes. They weren't you know mess around goofing off tapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I established myself with these directors of broadcasters at age eighteen, maybe when I'm twenty five, they will remember me. 
uh, and and hire me based on what they heard years ago. Sure, sure. I mean, that's years smart ago. marketing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're, you're you're a brand at that point, and you're trying to sell yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So this is in the seventies. Yeah, when no one even used that term brand and selling yourself. <laughs> right. You had to be ahead of the curve. Yeah. yeah. Were what were your I guess then schooling or college thoughts with this. Were you thinking that far ahead, like in high school? Why well, at the time uh, when I was in high school, USC, uh, KUSC was actually broadcasting all of their student sports, you know, football, basketball, baseball. Uh, but by the time I graduated from high school, they had hooked up with a public ra- radio network and became like an NPR affiliate. Okay. Uh, and then they stopped, they stopped the student involvement in sports. So I went to Los Angeles city college which had a, which has a, a still to this day, an extensive broadcasting curriculum with studios and TV and radio studios and uh, uh, professionals who are either is still in the business or have been in the business uh, as the uh, teachers. So the uh, experience at LACC led to uh, many internships including one at KLAC where I wound up staying for six years uh, as a paid internship on top of that. Wow. Uh, so that, that really was, uh, that led me to quitting college. I, did, I never graduated from LA City College. I, I spent two years there, but spent most of the time broadcasting either disc jockey shows or doing their sports and, and learning uh, the craft. Were, were you ever thinking gosh maybe i'll do disc jockey work just like spin records and do that or, or was your heart always somewhere towards sports well i with my internship at uh at klac um the klac at the time was owned by a company called metro media uh which also owned the rock station kmet yes uh, which is yeah, well, that's when it was still a rock station that's right uh, i used to have that and, sticker yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, came at yeah. mighty met. Yes, uh, and so my favorite disc jockey was B. Mitchell Reed, uh, and I and I and I probably told him that a hundred times. He would see me coming down the hall and turn and go the other way. Hey, B. B. Mitchell Reed, you're my favorite disc jockey. Anyway, I, I either wanted to be B. Mitchell Reed or Ben Scully, so <laughs> it came closer to uh, uh, the baseball and than being a disc jockey, but. Uh, I, I still to this day follow, uh, you know, big rock music fan from especially the 70s and 80s bands. Uh, but, uh, yeah, B. Mitchell Reed almost influenced me to become a, a disc jockey. Wow. See, yeah, I mean, you would think, like, at that time, late 70s, early 80s, like, that might be the cool place to be, and then MTV's kind of starting, and so you never yeah. kind of know where you might have gone at that point. It could have been anywhere. Yeah. Well, but I, I think down deep, I knew I was going to go into sports, but I, I just loved, uh, I think I, I, I love B. Mitchell Reed's broadcasting style and his voice as well. Uh, so it was just fun to be associated with uh, the, the talent that was on KMET uh, at the time. And, and a couple of times I've actually filled in uh, for Ace Young, their newscaster uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, one of the former, the former Rams broadcaster Bob Kelly, back in the fifties and sixties, his son uh, wound up being a, a disc jockey and newscaster at at KMET 
uh, Paraquat Kelly. I don't know if you remember him. No, but, <laughs> but I do. I, I've seen the name. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so being around the, that, that kind of talent and he was very talented and Ace Young was talented. Ace is still, I'm still in contact with him on Facebook. Uh, he's still in broadcasting up in Sacramento, I believe. Still. Uh, still on the air. Yep. Yeah. Good yeah. for him. Yeah. 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 It, uh, he, he was so cool and because, you know, they would, uh, partake in the newsroom <laughs> <laughs> and they always had these giant cans of what's called osium. I don't know if you ever heard of osium. No, it, it's a, it's a spray that you, you, it's like an air freshener, a uh, very strong air freshener. Uh, because if the suits were walking around the hallways and happened to duck into their newsroom, they might not have enjoyed the smell that was emanating from the newsroom. <laughs> so big cans of Ozium were all, and, and Ozium is still available. I think you can order it off of, uh, off of Amazon. Oh my um, goodness. Very, very strong air freshener that they, they use. And they, they always had, they never had a, they were never short of a can of Ozium just in case they needed to spray the place. <laughs> now this might be a silly question, but did, they, uh, did it, WKRP in Cincinnati influence you at all? I used to love that show uh, as a kid. I thought, wow, I'm working at a radio station. That's the best. Yeah. O- only Les Nesman. <laughs> the new- <laughs> the <Yes>. new- <laughs> I think, I think occasionally we would take some uh, gaffers tape and tape off the imaginary walls <laughs> of the newsroom uh, as he did a couple of times. Uh, but no, that was a great show. Um, uh, still, uh, every Thanksgiving, remember the Thanksgiving turkey yes. episode. <laughs> as God is my witness, as God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. That's what the <laughs> Gordon Jump. That was his great line. That was uh, one of the best written lines on television of yeah. all time. It's yeah. just beautiful that shot. Yeah. That scene. So every every year, I always I, it's on YouTube, and I, I always. It's like a ritual. You have your turkey and dressing and the WKRP turkey episode. You have to. You have to play that. Were you extremely confident in your early years that there was going to be a career path, or were you facing adversity like, oh, my God, I might have to be working in, like, Billings, Montana? Well, I, I at the time, I didn't think that was a bad option. I mean, I, I you know, I was reading all these biographies of all the great announcers, and most of them started in small towns. So I figured that was the career path. Um, so I, I think it helped quite a bit with my confidence that I was learning how to be a broadcaster in a big city okay. as opposed to being in a small market and, and seeing LA as this great Nirvana. Uh, to me, it was just LA, you know, and, and, and there were good broadcasters in LA and, and uh, people that uh, me and my, my, uh, pals thought we're lousy. <laughs> so we're better than we're better than those guys already, and they're working in LA. So we we kind of uh, figured out that if you're if you're halfway decent, you'll probably be able to work in a big market. Eventually, I knew I was going to work in New York. I always thought that was a place. If you were an up and coming broadcaster, you had to work in New York sooner or later. And I finally got to New York the first time and. 1992 to broadcast the Jets games, which was unusual that they would hire a guy from Southern California to broadcast the Jets games, but they did. Yeah. I mean, so let's talk about that. Do 
when you're going and you're working PA, is it a belief or am I completely off on this that they would want someone with a New York accent? Well, I, I was I was I was doing play by play. I wasn't doing or, PA or, or play by play. Even that, yeah. like, either yeah. way, would they want somebody with an accent to their city? Like, if you you know had this very California accent in New York or vice versa, would that throw off who's listening? Uh, I guess not. <laughs> I, I never really thought of it uh, that way. Uh, I, I think uh, listening to to Vin Scully so many years uh, on the way up, you know, he still had, uh, if, if you know your accents, he still had a little Eastern Brooklyn sound in his mm-hmm. voice on certain phrases and words. Um, and so... Uh, uh, no, I, I never really thought that was – well, first of all, I, I was just surprised that they hired me based on uh, – because I had sent tapes to become uh, a Yankees broadcaster a few years prior to being hired to, the, to do the Jets, and the and the station manager had moved on to a different station, and he remembered my tapes from the Yankees uh, audition. Wow. Uh, and, I, and called me out of the blue. I was uh, – what was I in Las Vegas or no, I know I was, I was back in Los Angeles. I called me out of the blue and says, Hey, this is a uh, Mark Mason, uh, uh, formerly of WFAN. I'm now at WABC or no, the other way around. Uh, I'm now at WFAN and we, we carry the jets games and Marty Glickman is retiring. And how would you like to do jets games? And I, wow. Okay. Cause I had done Rams games uh, in UCLA and, and done a couple of games on CBS TV. And so uh, based on that, they brought me back to New York. Uh, and shortly after I got here, uh, Tom Seaver, who had been broadcasting uh, Yankees games, uh, somehow got fired two weeks before the season began. Uh, and so I ended up pinched the TV station there in, here in New York, uh, Channel 11, uh, reached out to WFAN and said, can we use Paul on the Yankees broadcast? And so that's how I became a Yankees broadcaster, thanks to Tom Seaver getting fired. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, the dominoes and how yeah. people move and they keep a tape, they remember a name, and then other yeah. dominoes fall and you kind of line up in there and it works yeah. out. And sometimes you, 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 you send tapes and you, you beat your head against the wall uh, and then people come into you and, and ask, Hey, do you want to do this? It was the same with the Super Bowl. I was broadcasting the Jets games, and our PR director Frank Ramos came in and said, "Hey, I was at the NFL office today, and they were they were asking if they if I knew anybody who would be interested in doing PA for the Super Bowl." And I said, "Maybe you." So he said, "Are you interested?" And I said, "Sure, yeah." And so that's how I got the PA job to do Super Bowls, just simply by saying yes. And what was that? Ninety three to two thousand four. Ninety four. Okay. 94. Well, it was in the 93 season. Okay. Uh, for the January of 94. Yeah. It would have been yeah. the Super Bowl. Well, that, was in, that was in Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, so how is that when you, when, when you're jumping back and forth from play by pay play to PA, like what's the different skill set for you? Well, there's less talking for one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot less talking. Uh, and uh, well, I, I had a, a PA uh, uh, template. Uh, there was a guy named John Ramsey uh, who worked uh, the Dodgers public address, mm-hmm. the Rams public address, 
USC and UCLA's public address, uh, the Kings and the Lakers. Uh, and so since he was everywhere, that was the voice that I heard growing up. And I said, well, his style was, must be the way you do PA. So it was very direct, uh, not yelling or screaming, you know, like, you know, they, especially in the NBA, they like to have their PA guys be an advocate on the microphone and almost like cheerleader. Right. That's not my, I, I don't do that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, John Ramsey was very uh, direct and had just, just great, giant, deep voice. Uh, Maury Wills, Sandy Koufax. You know, it was yeah. like that. It was beautiful. Uh, <laughs> but uh, John Miller, the, the Giants broadcaster and a, and a great mimic, uh, would used to mimic uh, uh, John Ramsey. And uh, he said, well, John Ramsey only sounded like he was constipated when he was talking. <laughs> John, oh. Maury Wills. <laughs> uh, but it was just a, a funny uh, kind of exaggeration of, of his voice. But um, and he was and he did the PA quite often from the field. So he would stand on the field. He always wore a white short sleeve shirt and had these Ray Ban dark Ray Ban sunglasses. And he was kind of a rotund big guy. I uh, had this giant voice, and so that was the PA style that I still use to this day. Uh, whenever I'm doing football uh, or uh, baseball, his his particular approach to doing PA, and it's worked out. Yeah, that's a good style to have, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean in, in the job you have now, I mean, you're following, you know, Bob Shepard. I mean, that's an absolute legend. So was that like a thought for you to like how your style was going to be after Bob? Uh, well, I, I think they, the, the styles were similar that it was a no nonsense, uh, style, uh, mm -hmm. that the Yankees appreciated. Uh, and they probably figured since I had done, you know, 12 Super Bowls that I could handle a big stage in New York. And, and many of the people with the Yankees now were with the Yankees back in the early nineties when I was hired. Uh, many of the writers are still you know, on the beat. Mm -hmm. for writing columns who were here back in the early nineties. So they knew who I was. Uh, I was, you know, for, for better or worse, pretty popular with the writers, wherever <laughs> I was uh, in, in whatever city I was in, I always made sure I befriended the writers because I was always in on the, uh, the pregame meetings right. that they would hold with the managers and the coaches. Uh, and, and I would ask, you know, good questions that they would, you know, get their information from. So they, they trusted me to not just be some interloper broadcaster right. uh, intruding in their territory. Yeah. So that, that helped quite a bit. Uh, where did you feel, where did you feel you got your first break, your big break to like, okay, we're going in a upware projectory. We're moving up. Well, I think getting the internship at, at KLAC when I was, and then when I was 21, I had gotten an on-the-air audition with the White Sox uh, based on my USC connection. I guess Rod Dado, uh, the former USC coach, legendary, yeah. uh, say that, a legendary USC baseball coach, was good friends with Bill Veck, the then owner of the White Sox. And so uh, Veck had put into the newspapers that he was looking for a qualified, <coughs> qualified black announcer. Uh, whatever that meant. 
Uh, but I, I figure, well, I, I probably no one's better than me. So I sent tape to Chicago, didn't hear anything for a long time. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, Rod Dato would call me into his office and ask me a, a, a bunch of uh, unrelated questions to USC baseball. Uh, and as it turns out, he was reporting back to Bill Beck, uh, doing kind of a vetting. He's scouting. Of, He's scouting. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah, got a breakdown so, of your four speed and your shuffle and your. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, he, uh, I got, I got an audition May 26, 1976 when the White Sox came out to Anaheim. I worked with Harry Carey, um, and, and a guy named Lauren Brown, the late Lauren Brown and Harry Carey. There was a, before Harry went over to the Cubs and mm-hmm. really blew up. He was with the White Sox first when he moved to Chicago. Uh, so I did, uh, some innings of play by play, which was great at the time because my parents had moved back to Chicago where I was born. My mother's, uh, sister was ill. Uh, and so they moved back to Chicago to caretake her. And that was the only time my, my uh, father heard me do major league play by play, uh, before he passed, uh, before I got to the majors in 88 with Cleveland. Uh, but that, on the air audition with the White Sox and they were in Chicago. It was a Chicago team. So they were able to hear me do play by play. So that was a, that was a big thrill. That's great. That is fantastic. How was, I'll, I'll be silly if I don't ask, how was it working with Carrie? Great, great. It was very uh, effusive. Uh, gave me a big build up. There's a young man out here in California. who does the work for USC. And he, he's with us now. And he's going to do some play-by-play. Paul Olden, Paul, take it away. <laughs> so, so, yeah, he was great. Uh, and as it turns out, I thought that was going to be uh, my easy street uh, break into the major leagues when I was like 22. But it turns out I didn't get uh, to the major leagues until I, – I actually never got another baseball play-by-play job uh, until 19, uh, 1980. Wow! took me a while to to break in and that's when i went up to spokane washington uh, which turned out to be one of the great moves of my career to do triple a baseball uh for the uh affiliates for the uh, mariners at first and then the angels and then the padres why was that such a a a pitiful move just perfect Uh, well i got a chance to do play-by-play uh for you know a triple a team right below the majors Mm -hmm. but i also i also broke into television up there as a as a as a sports anchor okay uh and made uh quite a number of lifelong friends that i'm still in contact with i still visit spokane every once in a while i was there in 2017 i had a reunion with our staff uh sports uh staff uh, at the bar that we all used to hang out in, which is right around the corner from the TV station. <laughs> Shocking. <Yeah. laughs> if I own a bar, I'm putting it next to a TV station, a newspaper, yeah. like, yeah, that's where you yeah, put it. Oh, yeah, yeah, guaranteed uh, to have uh, uh, clientele. All the time. It's funny. Yeah. Everybody thinks, like, you got to be 18 and get to the majors, and they don't realize the greats, you and, and these people that have lined up over our career, they started out small. Like Al Michaels was like in triple a in Hawaii. Like yeah. you, you start off and you got to work your way up to the majors, just like everybody else. And I'm yeah, sure well, being, being a triple a in Hawaii is not a bad gig. <laughs> no, 
know, except I have heard him say they didn't pay much. So he was. Well, no, but no, no, they, they, they got away with it. Well, they're just now uh, passing, you know, had to go to Congress to get uh, teams to pay the players in the minor league just this year. Yeah. Uh, Our, our meal money in the minor leagues was $14 a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, which didn't last very long. That was breakfast. Uh, so that, yeah, yeah, but the play that was the that was the play that was the players' meal money as well. Uh, so uh, especially when we went to Hawaii, uh, you know, we we had to go to Hawaii for at least eight days, right? Because uh, the series were six or seven games, because we only went there once during the season. Uh, but uh, yeah, being in Hawaii was not a bad place to be if you're Al Michaels and you know Al's father was a very important uh media bigwig and helped him get that job and and helped him you know uh, along the way but obviously he had the talent but he's another as he mentioned in an interview a couple of years ago another Vin Scully devotee mm-hmm. uh, and the Reds liked the fact that he sounded like Vin Scully when they hired him uh uh, when I got hired in Cleveland in '88, uh, you know it was a big deal since uh, here's this, you know, black guy coming in and doing play-by-play with Herb Score, the legendary Herb Score, and so every word I uttered during spring training and the early part of the season, uh, all the you know people were listening to, and so the Cleveland Plain Dealer came out with a headline uh, on a story about me, and the headline said something to the effect. Despite his scullyness, Olden is okay. <laughs> Despite his scullyness. Yeah. I can't believe the guy wrote that line. Well, oh, it was a headline, so I'm sure I. Oh I, you my know, it, God, it was the headline. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the, the, whoever wrote the story didn't, you know, they don't control the headlines. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Jeez. Well, I'm glad you were just okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, but now I, I kind of I still have the uh, the copy of that newspaper and uh, now with the Vince passing it, it kind of takes on a, a yeah. different meaning. Yeah. Uh, that's a badge of honor there. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, there, if anybody's uh, yeah. gonna insult you, that's the best way to be insulted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You Despite could, his scullyness. Yeah, you can call me that all day long, sir. <laughs> <laughs> scullyness. Well, there you know there are a lot of guys in Southern California who grew up listening to Vin and and Dick Emberg and and you know how do you become a baseball broadcaster? Well, let's turn on the radio and find out. Uh, and it was turn on the radio. It wasn't a lot of TV back in the seventies. Uh, and uh, me and uh, you know Al Michaels and uh, I don't know you remember Al Conan who yes. used to broadcast the Angels. Al Conan mm-hmm. is another one. Uh, Rory Marcus, who eventually yes. followed another Southern California guy. We all had uh, that uh, Scully influence that you could tell uh, by our, you know, the pacing and the cadence of our play-by-play. Uh, so uh, it, there was one time when I was listening to Al Conan on an Angels broadcaster, uh, Angels broadcast, uh, and he said something word for word that Ben Scully would have said. So I called him up and I said, you know, I, you know, obviously we're all influenced by Ben Scully, but you can't say the same phrases that he uses. You can't use the same phrase. Uh, and so he understood what I, I was, I was saying, you know, it's, it's one thing to 
to sound like him and to have the kind of delivery like him, but you right. can't steal his pet phrases. <laughs> yeah, 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 you can't. Especially, especially being in the same town. <laughs> yes. I I was always, I mean, I, I love Vince Scully to death, but I, I was a huge Dick Enberg fan. Like, I just thought oh, yeah. he was wonderful in the way he described everything, football, basketball, yeah. all the stuff he did. And getting the chance to meet him, I just, I, you know, hugged him and said, oh, you're wonderful. You're my childhood. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> well, I used to, I used to uh, uh, do the practice play-by-play on the roof of the Coliseum of Rams games uh, into my tape recorder. And if I had an especially good play, I would go down to where he parked his car and wait for him to show up. And then I said, Dick, listen to this, listen to this play-by-play call. And I would play it for him and says, oh, boy, you guys are trying to steal my job. <laughs> uh, but he, in a complimentary way, sure. it, it, angry. And, and as it turns out, it, it, it was like fortuitous because I wound up being a Rams radio broadcaster like him. And I did some fill-in work for Angels games. Uh, and I did UCLA basketball and football. Uh, and I worked at KMPC where he worked. So that was a, a big uh, thrill for me to kind of follow in his footsteps. Uh, but I, I used to sit at home when the Dodgers played the angels in uh, spring training. You remember back then that freeway series and spring at the end of spring training was a very big deal that used to draw huge crowds right. at, at Anaheim stadium and, and Dodger stadium. Uh, that's not the case anymore because interleague play has kind of diluted everything. Right. But back then uh, it was rarity because, you know, usually you knew the Dodgers and Angels were not going to meet in the World Series. Sure. <laughs> but you would get to see, like, Nolan Ryan pitch against you yeah. know, Steve Garvey. That was huge. Yeah, yeah, just for a couple of innings. But but I used to sit at home and, and, and with the radio, and I would, I would tune to the Dodgers broadcast, and I would listen to it. And then I'd tune over to the Angels broadcast, and I'd listen to Dick Emberg. And i said, which one which one was better? And I, I think I actually literally – I had a, a different radio in a different room that I would tape record the angels broadcast. And then I would go and listen to the, uh, if, if there was a big play in the game, I would hear Vince Scully's call. Then I run to the other room to listen to how Dick Ember called it. <laughs> so which one was better? Well, well, I think I liked Dick Ember's call this time. And I think I like Scully's call this. So I was always comparing the two. Sure. And which I guess, you know, Dick Ember kind of suffered from that because he was always going to be compared to Vince Scully as great as Dick, uh, as great as he was. There was always that comparison. Uh, uh, so that, that was part of my, my growing up and, and learning how to be a broadcaster. Uh, uh, and, and I just remember listening to Dick Ember and he said, you know, cause a lot of people would say, well, you know, you don't, you don't script out he would, he would say, well, I would script out big moments if I knew a big moment was coming, you know, like a historical moment. Mm-hmm. I would script, script out a, a, a phrase. You know, maybe Ben Scully could do it off the top of his head. And the rest of us had to script out our ad lib. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, fast forward to 2000 and uh, I don't know, 19, when was this? 2000, well, I, forget, I, I think 2005. Something like that. No, no, uh, 2003. I, I forgot the exact date when when Wade Boggs with Tampa Bay got his 3,000th hit. 
uh, but I was doing TV for the, the Rays at the time, uh, and I scripted out what I was going to say if he got a 3,000th hit while I was on the air. Uh, and because I had listened to, as best I could, all the other announcers broadcasting the 3,000th hit for whoever. Okay. Uh, and, and, and almost to a man, they would always exclaim, and there it is. So I decided, okay, I'm not going to say, and there it is. <laughs> That's the last thing I'm going to say. Uh, well, what, what, uh, and then I, I figured out, okay, the hit that makes history is, and then fill in the blank. Okay. So that way, it, whatever it was, I would describe the hit. And then I would say the hit that makes history is a, and as it turns out, Boggs hit a home run. Uh, the first time somebody had hit a home run to become a 3,000 hit club member. Uh, so I said, and the hit that makes history is a home run. And you'll, then, you'll never believe this. That 3,000th hit was August 7th, 1999. Today's date. Okay, 1999. I, I, I'm not good at dates. I know, but, but uh, we're, yeah. we're on the podcast August 7th. That's amazing. The chance. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. This is the, uh, this is the anniversary. Wow. <laughs> yeah, who knew? Tells you how sentimental I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as it turns out, uh, another uh, little-known fact about that game, that was Dave Roberts' first game in the majors. It was? That was, his major, it was, that was his major league debut with Cleveland. A September call-up of some sorts? Yeah. No, an August call. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. an early bird getting in? Wow. Yeah. So yeah, that was, when he hits that home game. run, does that change yeah. the whole kind of like from 3,000 to home run, and do you have to kind of wait on your cadence? because he's not stopping at first or second, but he's got around the bases and does it matter? Well, well, the, the lesson that Ben Scully taught us all was after you make the call, you, you shut up. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he circled the bases. Uh, fortunately there were uh, the, the, the uh, security team for Tampa Bay was ready because there, there, uh, a guy ran on the field when he oh. was nearing home plate. And they were able to quickly tackle him and take him out of the camera range, which was great. Because when Boggs got to home plate, he knelt down and kissed home plate and then uh, pointed to the heavens for his, uh, his mother. Uh, so uh, by the time he did all that, then that's when I kind of described what was going on. And, uh, but I didn't mention the guy trying to enter the inter- I didn't mention the interloper because that was not necessary. Right, right. But uh, it just described what was going on. It, you know, if if you want to see it, it's it's uh, the the for some reason somebody uploaded it on YouTube. So that game is on YouTube, uh, um, and maybe uh, it, since today is the anniversary, somewhere it's being played. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll have to put that in the link in the podcast for sure. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, have you had other? you know, no hitters, 3000s, other kind of stunning kind of things you've been a part of. Uh, Derek Lowe's no hitter when he was pitching with Boston at Fenway park against the, the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, so I, I had, I had the play by play of that, but of course it, we were the visiting team, but I, I, you know, you know, it's a no hitter. So I, broadcasted like I was the Boston announcer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you go about that? If you're the opposing announcer, it's still historical. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't really take any 
time to say, well, I'm the Tampa Bay announcer. I'm not going to get excited about this. It was at Fenway Park. The place was packed. Oh. The crowd was going wild. And so I just got into it. And, and, and years later, uh, on the anniversary of whatever day that is, uh, I think on, on uh, the, uh, the MLB network, TV network, they played my version of the play-by-play call instead of the Boston version. Uh, so uh, why do, was that? Because maybe yours was more calm and collective, and theirs was probably hysterics and screaming. <laughs> well, I, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I, I think my buddy Joe Castiglione was broadcasting that game, and and I'm sure he had a great call. Uh, but for some reason, they they chose mine. I, I you know, I, who knows about these things? You know, for yeah. years. For years, the only call you heard, radio call you heard of, of Hank Aaron's 715th home run was of Milo Hamilton, the Atlanta broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't hear Vince Scully's eloquent uh, summation of baseball and society. You didn't hear that call at all because it was a local call. Uh, he was on local radio that night. He wasn't on TV. That was Kurt Gowdy's uh, broadcast on television. I think Kirk Gowdy and Tony Kubek. Uh, and then Milo Hamilton was on local Atlanta radio and Vinny was on local Dodger radio. Mm-hmm. Of course, everybody I think now would agree that his call was, was the best, but uh, you know, Milo Hamilton was the Atlanta guy and they figured they should play the Atlanta uh, announcers call of it, which was the case for many, many years. Right. It's That's why a lot of people never heard the Vinny's call. Right. It's interesting when you think about those historical moments, you do, like you said, you normally go with the home team's call, that, that yeah. representation of it. I just recently heard the Kurt Gibson home run from the Oakland A's perspective. Oh, I say I've never heard that. Right, right, because what do we always hear? We're hearing, you know, the improbable, you know, impossible, and the whole, Vinny's whole yeah. call. But you yeah. hear the Oakland side, and you can – feel him you can feel their pain you can absolutely feel dennis eckersley's ball just being hung over the plate and the poor guy's just dying well i guess that would be bill king yeah doing the play-by-play which is another one of my great influences uh bill king and by the way the the public address announcer for oakland many years he's the, the late roy Steele was another uh pa template that I chose to emulate down through the years. He had just this great smooth voice. Uh, and, you know, I got to know all the PA announcers around the majors when I was traveling, doing the play by play of whatever team I was with. Right. Uh, and so I got, you know, I got to know him pretty well. And, and, uh, you know, in his latter years when he fell ill, I still kept in contact with him, uh, through Facebook and, and, uh, and then when he passed, his uh, I think his daughter wrote to me that uh, he really appreciated that I was a big fan and always said that I was a huge influence. Uh, he was a huge influence on my PA style. Uh, uh, so yeah, I I never heard uh, the of the Oakland broadcast and and Vinny's call was a TV call on top of that. It was it wasn't radio. I think Don Drysdale was the play by play announcer on radio, uh, and his call was pretty good too. Yeah. Uh, but Vinny's call gets gets the uh, gets the uh, attention. Yeah, of course. You know, were were you always um, when you're always traveling with the team? 
Was it easy for you to set up, do your day, and have some time to yourself? Because you, as you know, baseball, you're in a town for three or four days. So if you guys got set up on a Thursday, you did a Thursday, Friday, Saturday game, or a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, did you get out and see cities as you were traveling? Did you get some time to yourself? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, that's that's one of the problems. With, there's so much time to kill. Uh, there's so much alone time or time in the hotel room or ordering room service. But I always made it a point, if I didn't know people in that particular city, I got to know people in that particular city, whatever city that was. So whenever we would travel, I would already have friends there uh, that were looking forward to me coming to town. Uh, um, and I also, uh, took my guitar with me quite a bit when I was with Tampa Bay, uh, took my guitar on the road and practiced my guitar. So that's such that, a baseball uh, thing. All the guys in the clubhouse are always trying to play guitar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, uh, that helped quite a bit. And if, if I wasn't practicing, I was, I was going to, you know, after the games, especially in Baltimore, go down to little Italy. Uh, yes. and where there are a lot of uh, jazz clubs and things like that. Uh, and so I'd find the, 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 the clubs where the guitar players were playing one. Mm-hmm. I remember going here to a club called in the, in New York called the Iridium. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Les Paul had a, was in residence there at the Iridium for many years before he passed. And so I got, uh, in to see him play. Uh, and I, and, you know, at the end of the shows, he would always, uh, sit at a desk and sign autographs of, you know, ticket stubs or program, uh, or whatever, you know, piece of paper you might've had and chat you up a little bit. And so I got in line and I got up to him and said, you know, Les, I, uh, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a guitar player. I also, uh, am a broadcaster with Tampa Bay and we're in town to play the Yankees. And he said, Hey, do you know Joe Torre? I said, Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, quick, a quick aside. I, I replaced Joe Torre on Angels broadcasts uh, when he was named the manager of the Cardinals uh, back in the uh, uh, in the uh, in the early nineties. I think ninety one, ninety or ninety one. Right. Um, so uh, I, I, whenever I saw Joe in the future, I always thanked him and I said, "You were you were the reason I was able to buy my first house." Uh, with the money I made from Channel 5 filling in me and Reggie Jackson uh, uh, an oil and water broadcasting if there ever was one uh, finished out the second half of the season with the Angels uh, but anyway I, I, I uh, last asked me if I knew Joe Torre I said yeah he says I've been trying to get a hold of him here's my phone number can you make sure you get it uh, to him because I, I need to talk to him so uh, on this little three by five card, he he, he scribbled uh, you know his phone number and signed it Les Paul, and so and I and I had a picture taken of him uh, with me, and so I I, I told Joe Torres, hey Les Paul's trying to get you, and I wrote the phone phone number on a different piece of paper, and so I have that uh, that three by five card uh, along with the photo of me uh, and a photo that I took of him framed and hanging on my wall at home in St. Petersburg. Uh, my, my Les Paul moment with one of the all-time greats. Uh, so, you know, playing guitar on the road helped pass the time quite a bit, but 
you always got to know people in various cities, whether, you know, you know, a, a, a different, um, uh, to, to hang out and with your friends. So you kind of look forward to the road trips for certain cities. Sure. And that's pre-interleague, uh, right? So you were kind of in the, oh, yeah. yeah. So you're in yeah. the same kind of city over and over again. The most pressure packed road trip was to Anaheim because I, people ask for tickets. <laughs> right. Everybody. Hey, you remember yeah. me, Paul? How you yeah. doing, buddy? <laughs> so, yeah. So that was, that was always difficult to come to Anaheim because you want to accommodate all your friends. Uh, and, you know, you would barter with the players. Okay. Uh, when we, we, when we go to Anaheim, are you using all of your ticket allotment? Yeah. Can I get four I need, from you? And yeah. Two can from I get two from you? <laughs> well, yeah. That, that's the way it worked back then. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that was, uh, that was the only kind of quote unquote drawback, uh, coming to Anaheim to play the, uh, the angels is all those, all those t- demands for tickets. <laughs> yeah, I always loved the road. I, I was fortunate when I was with the Angels, the late, great Don Baylor um, oh, yeah. was with us. And he would take me, especially in Baltimore, all these great little places. We would go New York and he, oh, this is the best crab cake place. And we're got to go to this little jazz club here. My son's yeah. into, and I'm just hanging out with Don Baylor, getting this like VIP, like tour. I was like, this is the best thing ever. This yeah. is great. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was a different time uh, in in sports where there wasn't as much money as there is now. Oh, yeah. uh, rel- relatively speaking, I mean, guys were still making a, a million dollars a year, but that was that was the height of the uh, right of the of the of the pay scale. Yeah. Now, now they're making know, that, and you know, in endorsements in an afternoon. Yeah. Well, almost. That's a, that's not quite the major league minimum, but it's getting close. It's getting close. Good lord! <laughs> how how did you find yourself in two thousand nine coming home to New York for a second time? Well, after after my contract ended with Tampa Bay in two thousand four, and it wasn't wasn't renewed, I decided to sell my house. Uh, and I remember 2004, the real estate market was kind of like it is now, just outrageous uh, for anything. Uh, and so I sold my house at a, a huge profit. And so I moved back to L.A. And so I, I needed some time off from the seven years with Tampa Bay. Uh, and so I went back to, to school. I went to enrolled at Valley College and, and uh, joined the school newspaper and became the photo editor in the newspaper. and. And this I is spent, 2004. Yeah, yeah, 2004, 2005. Yeah. Because yeah. the season ended in October 2004, and then I packed up and moved back to L.A. Wow. And so I think early 2005 is when I enrolled at, at Valley College. And, and then a friend of mine that I worked with years before was working at KNX, and she said that she called me up and said, hey, we need, we need a competent weekend sportscaster to do our updates because <laughs> I have confident. Yeah. Whoever they had it apparently wasn't very good. Are you, are you <laughs> breathing Paul? Is your blood pressure slightly moving? <laughs> uh, so I, I went to down to the station uh, at the time it was located in Hollywood uh, uh, and, and did a writing sample and a, and a cursory uh, on the air uh, or uh, audition tape. 
and then they hired me. So I, I was doing sports on the weekends at KNX, going to school, uh, uh, you know, five days a week in, at Valley College. Uh, and it was great fun. I had a wonderful time there, learned a lot. Still what were in you touch going to school for? Uh, photography. Taking? Okay, photography. Yeah. 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 What Was that an early bug? Was that something you fell in love with uh, and you just wanted well, to? And, in 95, uh, I got my first camera. Kevin and Reese, in fact, when he was working at a camera store on Ventura, Ventura Boulevard, uh, sold me my first camera. It was a film camera, Canon Elan. Yeah. Uh, and that was a, still taking film at the time. I didn't get my first digital camera until we went to Japan in 2004 to open the season against the Yankees when I was with Tampa Bay. Uh, and I went down to uh, Electric City in Japan. I don't know if you've ever been to Japan. No, no. Okay, well, there's a section of town called Electric City where all the electronic stores seem to be uh, the hub of anything audiovisual was in that part of town. And so I got my first little digital camera, point and shoot. Uh, and uh, but but no, I went. I, I was always interested in photography and was a big fan and learned quite a bit, you know, self-taught. Uh, and so I decided I wanted to become a uh, a newspaper photographer. <laughs> and so uh, are and, you and, kidding? Uh, no, no, no. And then I, and then I got into. I always had a, a fear of writing articles. I, when I was with the Jets and with Tampa Bay, I did Q and A type of uh, format stuff for the game programs, but I never wrote straight articles. Uh, I hadn't done that since high school when I went to Dorsey High School and mm -hmm. was on the school newspaper. And so I uh, started tackling uh, writing straight articles on everything under the sun at Valley College. And every year there's a junior college journalism competition that's either in Sacramento or, or Los Angeles. It bounces back and forth. And so all the junior colleges entered their best work, you know, written or photographs, whatever. Uh, and Valley College at the time, we had a really good staff. Uh, and we won a lot of writing awards, and, and I won some photography awards. Uh, but I also came in second in a, with, a, with a writing uh, article I did, which was a shock to all of us. <laughs> they got to the throwaway. I said, well, let me enter this, this story just as a, as a throwaway because no one really thought I was that great of a writer, but uh, some, a panel of judges did. <laughs> and so I got a writing award in addition to a photography award. Uh, but it was 14 months at Valley college of, of just being uh, running the photo department. And, and I made sure all of my photos where where was the photo above the fold on the front page? Uh, that angered a few of my colleagues. How come my picture is never above the fold on the front page? Well, you're not the photo editor. <laughs> <laughs> Talk uh, so, to the boss. <laughs> yeah. And we we uh, and uh, you know my my competitive streak in me uh, kind of kicked in uh, for maybe the good or maybe the bad. I, I had the endorsement of the of the of the campus of my supervisors there, uh, so we had a couple of students who, quite frankly, were dragging down the staff with their poor uh, writing and poor photographing ability, and so um, I kind of conspired with uh, 
the head of the department, I'd, I'd say, well, you know, we got to get these, we got to get rid of these people. <laughs> and so uh, we made it, we found a way to make it tough on them uh, by giving them either really bad assignments or not uh, using their stories or photos in the newspaper until they quit. <laughs> Good. Get quality uh, over crap. Get them out yeah. of here. Yeah. We, we, uh, we, because we, we, like I said, we had a really strong staff except for a couple of dead weights that we wound up getting rid of. Uh, and, and to this day, there, uh, one of our editors works in DC for one of the local, um, uh, papers there in Washington uh, and a couple of others are, are staff photographers and uh, a couple of newspapers around the country. So uh, we had a great time. Uh, we put out a really good product uh, uh, and I learned a lot. Uh, I, I was, I, I was, you know, trying to get major league broadcasting jobs at the time as well. Uh, but uh, no one was hiring. So I just stayed there until um the Yankees called out of the blue in 2009. Uh, I was in a uh, television production class at Valley College, uh, and I got a message uh, that uh, somebody from uh, at the radio station, a guy called me, one of the guys called me, says, some guy from New York, Yankees, called and wants to talk to you. And he mentioned the guy's name, and I didn't recognize the name. Uh, so I called the guy back and he turned out to be the director of the scoreboard operations at Yankee stadium. Uh, he had been in college when I was broadcasting Yankee games back in the early nineties. So he remembered me as the Yankee broadcaster and knew that I had done Super Bowl PA. And so said, Hey, how would you like to come back to New York to do a PA for the Yankees? We'll send you a script and, and you can, uh, uh, and then we'll fly you in for an audition. I said, okay. Uh, and so I didn't hear from him for another month. I said, well, I guess that idea went down the tubes, but then he called back and said, sorry, we had some things come up and they flew me back to New York and I had an audition right at, at the new Yankee stadium while it was still being constructed. Wow. Uh, and, uh, then, uh, like two weeks later, I got a call from, uh, uh Hal Steinbrenner. I was in San Diego. Uh, at the time with a friend of mine, uh, we were in a hotel and I got a call and, and he, he said, well, you're on speakerphone here with the rest of the uh, family and we want you to join. Uh, we'd like for you to join the Yankees family again. Uh, I said, oh, well, thanks. And so that's how I got the job, just uh, out of the blue call. And as it turns out, I, I learned later that they had targeted me basically as the only person they wanted, but they they made it seem like I was competing against other people just so I wouldn't get a big head or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, so I, I haven't missed a game yet uh, since 2009 when we won the world championship my first year. Uh, we, uh, I haven't missed a game uh, since. And that's, it's interesting because you got to, you're replacing Bob. You get a new building. It's like a different position for you as the PA guy, right? You were doing play-by-play. Yeah. Now you're the PA. How was it opening up a new building? Very nerve-wracking. I remember we we had a exhibition uh, series, two games against the Cubs, because Lou Pinello was still managing the Cubs. Uh, and I can remember reading uh, some announcement, but I was, I, I felt the perspiration under my arms dripping down, <laughs> oh. dripping down. 
I, I, you know, I usually, I don't get that nervous. I mean, I've been on big stages prior right. to that, but, uh, I was, I was extremely nervous. Uh, and, and, and I had to read, um, uh, we were opening up the stadium with a new Mitsubishi, uh, uh, video board and all the Mitsubishi executives were to be introduced. Oh my <laughs> so goodness. I, so I had a lot of Japanese names that I, I couldn't screw up. So I, I spent a quite a bit of time rehearsing that script and I got through it. Okay. Uh, wow. but I, I, I have never been as that nervous since. Give me a walkthrough. What is a day in a life like for a Yankees PA announcer? A normal game on a Tuesday against, let's say, Oakland. Uh, well, I show up two hours before the game, uh, which we like for a 7 o'clock game, 5 o'clock. Okay. Uh, and I, I hold prepare for me by our marketing department. Uh, they prepare the script, the pregame scripts. Uh, and if not, I just got to you know, hang out, visit. Well, these days, uh, the post-COVID era, my routine is I, I come in, I get the uh, disinfectant wipes. <laughs> I, and still to this day, I wipe down everything in my, because I have a booth, my own, I have my own room. Right. And I wipe glass room, but, right? I, but I share it, I share it with, with a, uh, one of our content producers. So she's, she's there from, you know, nine to four, usually gone by five o'clock. So I wipe down everything. Uh, uh, take the windscreen off the microphone and wash it every day. Although I'm the only one who uses that microphone, <laughs> I, I don't trust myself. So I still wash this thing every day. Uh, and then by that time, usually the script is delivered and I, I go over the script some days. It's like with, when Boston's in town, we usually don't do any pregame ceremonies for anything. I don't know why that is. Uh, it's just, you know, do the lineups at 10 minutes before seven and then, uh, start the game. Uh, but for like an Oakland, I might have a pregame ceremony with, uh, uh, recognizing a local dignitary or some sort of accomplishment. Uh, so I go over the names in the script. If there are names that I might have trouble with, I either ask our marketing department to make sure they ask them that on the field, what, how to pronounce their names, or I go online and look for something that involves that person on YouTube and you know, almost, almost everybody is on YouTube. I found out for one reason or another, (laughs) (laughs) good or bad. Yeah. Speeches they've made or, or, uh, or, you know, somebody, a realtor in a particular town with an odd pronunciation is doing a, a walkthrough at a house in his town and he'll say the name of the town and uh, it's okay. That's how you do it. Or I'll call this to the police department or the chamber of commerce in a, in a particular town and ask him how we pronounced it. We had one name uh, years ago for a, a veteran. We do a veteran of the game in the seventh inning. We recognize a World War II or Korean War or Vietnam War or Middle Eastern War uh, veteran. And uh, so we had a name of a guy who was from a town in Louisiana, and this town was spelled B-O-S-S-I-E-R. Uh, and so, wow, I, I thought it was bosser or bossier. And so, uh, I didn't want to take a chance. So I called the uh, fire department there, uh, just out of the blue. I said, how do you pronounce the, your city? Uh, I'm in New York and you have to say this name. And he says, Bozier. I said, B-O-S-S-I-E-R is Bozier. Yep. Okay. And so, uh, and so I, I took a little pride when I, 
said his, the name of the city properly, because I'm sure, you know, on first look, he would not have pronounced it Bozier. Sure. Uh, so, uh, Look uh, at so you that's, do that's, a little investigative work there, Paul. Just oh yeah, well you do that all the time, and 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 uh, for <laughs> and for reasons that uh, uh, that you you might understand, uh, if I use my phone to call a city to ask how to pronounce the name of the city, then I can write off my phone on my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man, because I'm, Paul. Using it in in my job, uh, so that that uh, unless the IRS is listening now, that's what's one of my deductions every year. <laughs> now, are you are you having a pregame meal? Do you exercise your voice? Do you drink certain fluids beforehand? Like, what's what else do you do physically? Uh, there's only, there's only, uh, a few times where I'll, I'll have my pregame meal in, in the, in the media restaurant. Uh, but I usually go and take it and bring it back to my position in my booth and eat there. Uh, but there, um, last week, uh, a guy named Dave Sims, who is this uh, broadcaster for Seattle, and who had been a New York sports writer many years ago. Uh, I, I always have uh, dinner in the restaurant with him. I have dinner in the restaurant with Joe Castiglione, the broadcaster for Boston. We've been longtime friends. Um, when uh, the Oakland broadcaster, until this year, had been making the trips, but he, he takes New York off, so he no longer shows up Ken Korak. Uh, and then... Uh, the Minnesota broadcaster, Ryan Lefevre, whose father was Rookie of the Year, uh, Jimmy Lefevre, for the Dodgers in 1965. Uh, we became very good friends. Uh, and so I always have dinner with him. Uh, and uh, But otherwise, uh, it's, it's just get your stuff and uh, get prepared for the game and then uh, start reading. Uh, maybe at 20 minutes before 7, that's when our – ceremony start and i start reading then and try to uh, not screw anything up yeah most most times i'm successful you mentioned <laughs> dave sims i love dave sims he's fantastic oh. yeah yeah love that guy yeah. always was a pleasure when he came into town or when he we go up to seattle he was so yeah. great got a beautiful yeah. smile yeah yeah dave is is always a good people and a snappy uh, dresser yeah <laughs> always yeah. looked dapper yeah, um, uh, he's another one of the guys who made the transition from being a, a sports writer because he was he was a sports writer for many years in New York, uh, and then got in, in interested in broadcasting. And I, you know, helped him along the way, critiquing tapes and stuff like that back in the '90s. Uh, and uh, despite my help, he has uh, uh, gone on to a successful career in Seattle. So, yeah, I mean, people don't think, I mean, I'm sure people think, oh, you show up 10 minutes before a game, they hand you a piece of paper, you sit there in your little booth, and you read, 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 and you get out of there and you go. There's a lot to it I don't think people understand that goes on before you even see that script. There's two hours before a game. You've got a lot of things you got to get down. Well, no, actually, no. It's 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 as simple as showing up. I, I don't write the script. Right, uh, but I, you got to go I, over I, it. I go over and I, I change some things to, to suit my particular style of reading. Mm -hmm. um, 
because uh, you know it's it's not written uh now now they write more to with to with my my reading style in mind but that wasn't always the case uh but um there's a lot of uh downtime before the either the script shows up or there maybe there's not much to read it might be on one or two ceremonies before like last week uh on uh tuesday uh well the day the the day after uh ben scully passed uh the only thing i had to read was a moment of silence for him uh which was you know uh mixed emotions with me uh, uh because you know i i, I knew you know, Vinny pretty well and, and it's always difficult to read moments of silence for people that you know uh, uh so but was that, that was the really only that thing that tough was it that hard uh, well, it it, it 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 wasn't hard once you know the the, the director says go, uh, and you read it. You know, I I I, I sent you a copy of it. Oh I yeah. It. Oh, I did. It's t- yeah. oh man. Uh, and so I made sure it, I changed a couple of things and added a couple of things, uh, and and just got through it, uh, knowing that uh, uh, that. You know, thinking back on the years and the influence he had on my career, uh, and and getting to know him, it's like with Bob Shepard. I mean, when I was with Tampa Bay, and even uh, earlier than that, when I was traveling to New York, either with ESPN or with other uh, teams, I, I like I said, I always made it a point to get to know the PA announcer. Mm-hmm. So I got to know Bob years before I replaced, uh, followed him. Uh, we would, we would dine together in the Yankees restaurant when I was with the team in the nineties. Uh, he had a little corner table that was his table and he like held court. And if you were able to sit at the table with him, you felt special. (laughs) Uh, uh, so I, I, when I was, uh, interning that paid internship at KLIC and they eventually became a full-time job, I got the press pass to, to cover the Dodgers. And this is 1974. So I was in the press box at Dodger Stadium and, you know, Vinny would come in and uh, would sit down at the table. We were, uh, if there was no place else to sit, he would join us and, and uh, quite often. Uh, and so I got to know him, you know, by dining with him and, and listening to his stories. I'll tell you one story that I, I always wanted to ask him about because I never had a chance to follow up on it. Um, we're, we're sitting uh, three of us at a four seat table and he comes in and gets his food and sits down and joins us. Uh, and he's all excited. And so he said, well, what happened? And he says, well, and he says, now I know why the players are so excited about Cadillacs. I test drove a Cadillac today and it was great. And he was very enthusiastic about test driving a Cadillac, but that was typical him. He, he found uh, the beauty and, and, excitement in, in, a, in a car test drive <laughs> but he was but what struck us was he was just so over the moon about the fact that now i know what the players are all talking about when because that was back, that back again in the 70s not too many players could afford to drive cadillacs right right uh but he te- i don't know if he wound up buying one uh but he test drove one that day and was all excited to tell us about it. That damn dealership should have given him one. He would have been a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, Ben Scully was big by that time. Oh, in the yeah. He was already a, a star in town. 
so I, I don't know why he didn't strike a deal. Maybe he did. I, I like as I have to ask him about that yeah. from that very day. The Cadillac of Beverly Hills should have had him up front and center. <laughs> Shoot. All right. So that's nineteen seventy four. Yeah. All right. So tell me about nineteen seventy eight. You and Tommy yeah. Lasorda. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> you ask yeah. you're covering one simple Dodgers Cubs game and you ask one simple question and it goes down in forever Dodger lore as the Tommy Lasorda rant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the funny thing was when uh when Tommy retired as manager of the Dodgers, uh the LA Times did a top ten uh Lasorda moments and that uh, that interview, quote unquote, was number three. Whoa, top three. <laughs> Good job, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> I know it was Mother's Day that day. It was a hot day in Los Angeles, an extra inning game. Uh, Dodgers blew a late lead. Uh, and we, you know, we all wanted to get out of there to get to our moms for dinner. Uh, and it wound up going, I think, 14 or 15 innings. Uh, and Dave Kingman had the three home runs and the eight RBIs. And so I was covering the game for KLAC and just to get tape for our sportscaster, Jim Healy, you know, Jim Healy mm-hmm. uh, and the morning news uh, roundup. So we could have just a basic reaction uh, of the Dodgers losing the game. And that's, you know, we got down to the clubhouse and then to Tommy's office all crammed into that office that was full of photos with him and his Hollywood pals uh, and his post game plate of lasagna uh and so uh everybody else seemed to be asking these basic have nothing to do with the questions and so i perked up and said uh just innocently just looking for a 15 second soundbite uh so he could get out of there uh what was your opinion of kingman's performance and that set him off uh for the next um 90 seconds uh so eventually, um, you know, I turned in, you know, as I always do when I cover the Dodgers with audio tape, I turn it into the news department and then a tape for Jim Healy to use if he wanted. And he used that the next day with all the bleeps put in uh, on his nightly radio show, which was very, very popular. Mm. Everybody and their brother listened to that 530 show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so... uh that was the beginning of it. And as it turns out, he was good friends with Buzzy Bavese, who called him and said, I got to have a copy of that tape. So Buzzy Bavese, the former Dodger executive, he was with the Angels at the time, got a copy of the tape. And though he subsequently made copies for all of his baseball friends. <laughs> and so that's how I started getting around. Uh, but being played on Healy's show almost nightly portions of it for the next you know, 10 years. <laughs> uh, and and you know Tommy and I were were, were you know were we didn't we weren't adversaries. I mean we had a laugh about it and sure. Uh, uh, but that uh, to this day, uh, I always say in my obituary in in the uh, Southern California that'll be in the first paragraph and my obituary in the East, it won't even be mentioned. I love the best part about it. It made my wife, I had her listen to it the other day, but doing the research, she chuckled when he says, how many RBIs does he have? Seven. And you 
without missing a beat said eight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he just starts right back up. What do you, yeah. what do you want my opinion to be? It just, it was so well, I, think, I, think, I think after the first 45 seconds that he, he kind of realized that it was, it became theater <laughs> as opposed to actually being upset with me. And so that's when we, cause he remember he, there was a writer named Joe Hendrickson who covered the team for the Pasadena Star News. That's when Joe got up in the middle of it and left the room. That's when, when he says, I'll see you later, Joe. I don't know if you remember yeah. hearing him say uh-huh. that. He's saying goodbye to Joe Hendrickson, uh, who had heard enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to get home to my mother. I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, and so it just became like a back and forth between us then as a, like a like a little tennis match. <laughs> to see who could one up the next one on uh, whatever was being said. <laughs> are are you having the time of your life right now in this part of your career? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh you know, working for the Yankees, uh, organization that, uh, uh, that I've had a long history with, you know, this is my 14th year, uh, doing the public address, uh, for the Yankees and being involved in, 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 fantasy camps down in Tampa and you know, I live in St. Petersburg and every year well, I do the uh, uh, host the fantasy camps where the ex players come in and you know people sign up to wear Yankees uniforms and play games but play baseball games real hardball games wow. uh, and just uh, you know there's no other job that you know I'm, I'm paid very well uh, but I have my own room I, I, my room has a refrigerator and a microwave and great view of the game. And I, and I'm paid uh, handsomely to uh, watch baseball games. That's beautiful. Now, <laughs> Half the year. And then, I, and then I get a chance to go back home. I don't have to spend the winters in New York where it's cold and snowy. Sure. I go back to Florida where the best time of the year to be in Florida is, is the fall and into the winter and into the early spring. Now you, you, you sent me a couple of photos and you snuck me that one you sent where you're taking pictures from your booth of home plate. I and mean, that was yeah. a really good play at the plate, a little shutter bug and you can't help, but take some pictures from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that helps pass the time actually. Um, uh, because I, I, I'm really focused on the game. Uh, and if there's something good that comes up, I, I, uh, have my little cannon, point and shoot camera that has a 40 X opt- optical zoom. Wow. Uh, uh, I, I've used a camera that had a 900 optical zoom, a, a Nikon, but uh, that that's a pretty heavy camera. Yeah. That's uh, big. That gets big. So I, 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 I can't sit there during the whole game and hold the <laughs> camera. Uh, but my little Nikon uh, and, and I've just uh, recently started shooting everything in manual mode now. Uh, Good man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, no, actually uh, the, the photography is probably is going to be my, uh, next career after I stopped doing PA, um, uh, uh, in St. Petersburg. Uh, I'd like to do commercial stuff, uh, family, uh, photos, weddings, that type of thing. Small weddings, not big ones. Sure. That's, that, that's a lot of work. Do you enjoy landscapes? Seascapes. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I have done a lot of landscape stuff, but it's, it's not challenging as, as much as working with people, as you well know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you can always ask Ariel and see she's got an internship opening. You can always join her. 
Well, yeah, that's uh, she's pretty much covered with that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do, and she's, uh, she's, yeah, I can't do it during the day, during the game. When you retire. Uh, um, but, but I'm going to be down in Florida and I, you know, so I practice here at home with, uh, I have some off camera flash and some flash triggers and working on, uh, uh, controlling the ambient background and, uh, and, and controlling the flash. And again, I uh, use, since I, everything's on manual now, I can, I'm learning how to manually control the flash power. And, uh, and when I get back to St. Petersburg in October, after hopefully after a world series victory for the Yankees, I'm going to turn my uh, my uh, part of my apartment into a, a photo studio and start doing uh, headshots and things like that for the residential. I, the, the place where I live is a sprawling um, condo complex, uh, and I would imagine there are a fair amount of people who need headshots and and family photos done. So I'm going to start there, you know, putting a little notice on the board in the washroom or, or going through our, our Facebook page and letting people know I'm available to do that type of work to really practice my skills and then eventually branch out to do high school and college uh, teams and, and individual stuff like that. Good. So as I, as I get older, I still want to try new things and, and challenge myself. Uh, I, I know too many people who retire and just kind of sit around and don't do anything or don't challenge themselves to learn new things. Uh, uh, and I also have my, uh, my Ferris wheel str- uh, 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 challenge that I, I want to ride the largest Ferris wheel in each state. Uh, so that's 50 Ferris wheels. I've got I've done three so far. <laughs> three. You got a ways to go, Paul. <laughs> I know, but, uh, when did I'll you get, start uh, last week? I mean, that's come on. Uh, well, yeah, I, I well, I'm, I'm not going to try and do all 50 in, in a two week period. I'm going to spread <laughs> it out over two years. Uh, so I, I'll eventually get to the world's largest Ferris wheel, which is in Dubai. But the second largest one is in Las Vegas. And, and my, I have family in Las Vegas and that's where we're going to do Christmas. So at least I'll get that one done. The second largest in the world. What, the, what are uh, the three that you've done now in the States? What three? Are you uh, uh, Georgia, Atlanta, uh, Georgia, the one in Atlanta, uh, Orlando. And um, uh, let's see, what was the other one? Georgia. Maybe I've only done two. <laughs> oh, <laughs> seems like I've done three. I'm, try, I'm trying to think of the third one. Or maybe you're thinking of the one in Nevada being your third. Uh I tried to do the one, and I, I I made a miscalculation when I was in L.A. Uh, over the winter, and I thought the Ferris wheel at the Santa Monica was the largest in the state, uh, but they wouldn't let me ride it because they said no single riders, which you, know, you can do that if you're if uh, there's an age limit for a lot of people. They won't let you ride if you're alone if you're a certain age, but I didn't know they blocked adults, uh, really? and as it turns out. Yeah, as it turns out, the largest uh, Ferris wheel in the state of California is a, a Disney uh, California Adventure. Oh, so I got to get out there when I when I come back to California. Uh, the only downside is I have to pay to get into the entire park just right. to ride. Right, that's a hundred dollars yeah. to get into a damn Ferris wheel, Paul. I know, I know, <laughs> but you know that's 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 where the biggest one is. So that's where you, know, you go. Like, like, they got, like the guy said, why do, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. <laughs> That's where you go. <laughs> when I, doing my research, 
you know, I, I loved all the things you do, but the biggest thing I appreciated was the running. I love that you made that challenge and you've been running for yourself. Yeah. There's a photo they did in runner's world and Paul, you don't look a day over 40. My God, you oh, look fantastic. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the big thrills. I, I, I got a little feature in runner's world and and a few years ago, I also got a little feature in guitar world. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, but I, I had to stop the running streak cause I had a, 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 an injury that prevented me from running, but I did four, I got four years to the day of running at least a mile every day for four years, which pales in comparison to the, to the record, which is ongoing, which mm-hmm. is over 52 years. Yeah. A guy out in California has run every day, at least a mile for 52 years. I did one where a guy was three miles. He was a former Cal State Fullerton guy, Mark Covid, and he did forty years of three. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you can't yeah. even shortchange yourself and be like, ah, I just get a mile and a half in. And he had to get his three. Yeah. yeah. So what yeah, got I, you into I, running? Well, I, I ran uh track at, at the Dorsey High School. I wasn't very good, track and cross country. Uh and I always enjoyed running. Uh, but I, you know, I, I put it down for several years and then I decided, uh, you know, it's one of those things I needed, I need a challenge this year. What's, what's available. Oh, running. Okay. Let's do that. <laughs> and so I, I actually, when I was in high school at Dorsey, I was, a I was not competitive and I was always finishing last. Uh, uh, unfortunately my, my father came to see me run once and I finished last. Uh, and that was kind of a disappointment. Uh, but in my sixties, I, I found out that uh, running five K's and 10 K's that I was podium competitive uh, in Florida, at least not, not so much in New York. Cause there are a lot of, there are a lot of fast old guys in New York. <laughs> Damn it. Not, not so much in Florida. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was podium competitive, uh, in Florida and, and was either if I, if I, if I, if I wasn't winning, my age group, I was in the top three. And, you know, so I have a whole lot of medals and, and uh, ribbons and stuff uh, from my, when I was really running, entering a lot of races. The, the most I'm preparing for the Fifth Avenue mile here in New York next month, uh, which literally is what it sounds like. We, we line up on Fifth Avenue and in, in front of the museum and run down to, uh, uh, the uh, Grand Army Plaza, uh, and and a few years ago, at the top of my my fitness, I, I ran that mile in six and a half minutes. Whoa! Uh, now I'm not so fast. I, I I'm hoping to run around the eight eight and a half minute mark. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but the great thing is they 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 have they break it into various uh, sections for you know, school teachers or firefighters. Uh, so I run in the media section. The media, that a boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I'm the New York times has like 30 people, <laughs> most of them under the age of 30 who run and, and, you know, they really are, uh, some of them are formal competitive collegiate milers. And uh, so they're, bastards. they're doing, they're doing, <laughs> stuff. You know, they're doing four minutes, four and a half five minute miles. Uh, but, but the great thing is, uh, they provide you with a free pair of shoes. Oh, whoa. Yeah, brand, brand new, new balance running shoes. 
uh, which is sweet. <laughs> That's fantastic. Is that what yeah, you like so, to run in or train in? Uh, for that race, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about uh, the injury. What is it? A hip, knee, foot? What's no, that? no, a, a, a nerve neuro- neuropathy. Okay. All right. Um, so that's not going to ever go away. Yeah, that's something you just got to deal with during the run. Yeah, yeah. So I, I so I don't run every day anymore. Okay. Uh, pick pick my spots, pick my races, and then train for that specific race, and, as opposed to just running in general every day. Because I was I, when I was running during my streak, some days I run a mile, other days I run three miles, other days I run eight miles. Uh, it just depended on how I felt that night mm-hmm. and what I wanted to do. So I, there was no rhyme or reason for how far I went. Um, which probably in the long, uh, literally the long run was detrimental to <laughs> right. my uh, well-being because you know, running on concrete, running in, and that, especially running in New York City, you know, you're dodging a lot of cars, you're dodging a lot of people, um, rats at, at night because I always ran around midnight. <laughs> I always dodging the rats. I ran in Central Park. The the giant possums would come out and fur, forage in the trash cans and. They'd sit on the edge of the trash cans, and you'd be running toward one, and you see this giant circular <laughs> mass, and you could only see the reflection in their eyes, which made it even more eerie. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I didn't know what those things were capable of, so I always changed my route whenever I saw one of those things late at night in Central Park. And then the cops started cracking down on people being in the park after 10 o'clock for a long time, they didn't, but there had, there were a couple of incidents, unfortunate incidents in the park, uh, late at night. And so they started cracking down. So I could no longer run in central park after midnight. Oh yeah. You don't want to get in any trouble in the park with possums at midnight. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> or, or people trying to, but I would always run with a little can of, uh, pepper spray, oh. uh, that fit in my hand. So it fit in the palm of my hand. Uh, because you just never knew. Sure, it, right. What, what never knew what might happen. You're just uh, a PA guy out for a jog. You don't need to get mugged. Yeah, yeah. Why <laughs> not? Well, I, I was out for a run. That's right. That's right. You're not, a not jog. It's I it. was running. I wasn't jog. <laughs> That's right. It was runner's world, not jogger's world. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Paul, I cannot thank you enough for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. You're amazing. I love your story. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm serious. I, I love that you're chasing Ferris wheels. You're taking pictures. You're doing what you want to do. That is like the best thing ever. And I have goals in life. Yes. That I have goals to accomplish. Yeah. I'll be 70 in a couple of years. And so I figure, well, I, there is just the other day I saw uh, on, on Instagram, the, the master's uh, track meet was held recently. Yes. And there was an 85 year old guy who was running the hundred yard, hundred meter dash. And he ran a 16 second hundred meter dash at 85. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's the guy. That's the one that that's, that's my role model now. That's it. Uh, uh, so, and, and he looked great. I mean, he, yeah. he, I mean, there were other guys in the same, in the same race who were, you know, taking 30 seconds to run a hundred, hundred meters. He ran it in at 85, but at, at 16 seconds. Uh, so, so the, the, those older people who accomplish things at an older age or who take up new things at an advanced age, 
Uh, and, and, you know, I'm in a position, especially in a few years, where I can afford to do it. And so I have, I have the money to devote to buying the best photographic equipment if I need it. Uh, that won't be a, an impediment. Uh, the only thing that would stop me is me and my desire. So uh, as long as I am continue to be motivated to do new things, uh, I hope to be around for another, you know, few years. My predecessor, Bob Shepard, did his last game when he was 96. Yeah. I, I'm not going to last that long. <laughs> <laughs> You'll let did, Bob have that record? Yeah, yeah. He did 57 years of PA. Uh, for the Yankees, and I'm and I'm just coming up on the end of my 14th. So, well, you mathematically, give, yeah, I won't catch. You give me a, another reason to come to New York. I have, I need to see Ariel, but I have definitely, if I'm coming out to the stadium, I'll swing by and tap on your booth and say hello. Excellent, good, good. Thank you, thank yeah. you. You know, we we probably sh- uh, were shot USC football games shoulder to shoulder back in 2004. Five, you know the the Pete Carroll era. Right. Yep. We probably, Kevin, we probably, Kevin always, yeah. Kevin always had an extra photo pass. Yeah. And he gave it to me, and so I would I would go to Sammy's camera and uh, and Westwood. I guess uh-huh. it's no longer there. Uh, it's no longer there. I either go to Sammy's camera or Calumet on uh, Fairfax. Yep. And rent a four hundred millimeter lens because uh, Kevin was using his. Uh, and I would uh, shoot those games right there on the sidelines, and uh, 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 and I actually did uh, string for um, a photo agency whose name I can't remember now. Uh, <laughs> I, I did do some stringing for a photo agency, and and I did the, uh, a lot of uh, soccer photography for UCLA because I, I was a I a friend of mine who's no longer UCLA. She's at uh, art center in Pasadena, but she was doing media relations at UCLA and hired me to do a lot of, uh, of, uh, photography work at UCLA. Well, so I was actually a paid photographer for a while. Look at you, man. Many yeah, hats, Paul, many hats you've worn. I, I knew what it was like to, to establish a high hourly rate. <laughs> <laughs> prevent people from taking advantage of you smart man Uh, yeah high hourly rate in the two hour minimum so (laughs) i I was making at least three hundred dollars before i i I shot anything for anybody there you go (laughs) you're smart god love you paul i i again i i am thankful we got hooked up and and we had this chat today because this has been an absolute treasure well i appreciate you uh thinking I was worthy enough to be on your podcast. Oh, no, 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 no. All my pleasure, sir. You're an absolute legend. I can't thank you enough. All right. See you later. All right. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Paul Oden. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button, subscribe to the podcast, and remember, you can follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram. You can find all of the past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.